Hello, everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into the tactical side of Major League Soccer. I'm your host, Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, right off the bat, I got two things for you. First of all, how you doing out there in Colorado? And second of all, I want to know all about cross-kitchen skiing. The people want to know about it. I want to know about it. Is it the newest <laughs> Olympic sport? One, I'm doing great. Um, <laughs> Two, I am happy I'm making people smile, right? This is not um, something that any of us have ever gone through before. And you know what? My friend Kate Parker, who is a writer, she wrote a book. Um, she's a photographer, but also has written books. Um, and her most popular book is called uh, Strong is the New Pretty. And then she has one called Heart of the Boy. So it's both these like trying to change like these social norms that we think about girls and boys. And she was like, I'm going to challenge people to just like see the good in this downtime. And so that was my, my challenge <laughs> being the challenge being accepted. And I was like, I'm, I was just like being weird one day, just like scooting around the kitchen. And I was like, wow, I can actually get a good workout. So, um, I think some people got some laughs. I also have dubbed it over as like some commentary because someone asked me for that. So uh, I might be having to post that as well. Oh, we're going to need <laughs> to see that ASAP. Listeners, if you haven't seen this video, it's on Jordan's Twitter at Jordangeli. You got to go check it out. It's It made me laugh. And I'm guessing it made a lot of people out there laugh, too. It's pretty spectacular. I don't know if the Olympic Committee will pass that through for the Olympics. But you know, I mean, we can try. We can push for it. At least I'm on your side for this one. We can get it through yeah. if we really try. Yeah, it is. It, it does um, like wake the bottom of your feet up because like every time you go over a tile or like a piece of wood, like you just feel that and like my, my <laughs> feet were tingling afterwards. I was like, all right, OK. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we need some special shoes or something for, might, yeah, for that sport. Yeah. Or like we need some mops and then it's like you're doing your exercise, but also cleaning. Man, OK, I'm going to have to do that tomorrow or later today. <laughs> um, but we're not here to talk about cross kitchen skiing. I mean, we kind of are. That was pretty great. Yeah, but we're we here to analyze major league soccer action last week jordan you and i talked about three of the teams that are struggling in the league right now we talked about the los angeles galaxy and what guillermo barasoloto needs to do to fix that squad we talked about the san jose earthquakes and what's going wrong with mateus almeida's man marking system and we talked about the flaws of the portland timbers offensive and defensive setups so if you guys are bored and looking for something to do i would definitely recommend going back to check out that episode but on this week we're going to talk about a little more of a positive thing we're going to flip the scales here and dig into three teams in the western conference that are performing very well so far this season that have won both of their early year matchups and that hopefully that little foundation of two games will give us something to build off of will give these coaches something to build off of for the rest of the season so we kind of divvied up the work like we did last week Jordan has a team to analyze I have a team to analyze and we split the third team right down the middle 50 50 we're going to talk about Sporting Kansas City and that's Jordan's team the Colorado Rapids and Minnesota United those are the three undefeated teams in the Western Conference with all wins to start the season so Jordan if you don't have anything else to get to before we start we're going to lead off with your sport in kansas city peter vermiza's team two wins six points what's going on in kansas city yeah i think this is a good place to start they are top of the western conference right now two wins six points uh, they had a three one win at vancouver and a four to nothing win versus houston at home and i think when i watched these two games there were really three 
takeaways I might push for because <laughs> I, I started really liking Kinda. Have, have you oh, watched yeah. Sport? Oh my gosh. He's fantastic. We can talk he about is, him for sure. Yeah, well, we're going to have to dip into him a little bit at some point because I really, really liked the way this guy plays. Um, but I want to talk about three different things. Um, defensive pressure and defensive presence by Sporting Kansas City. I'm going to talk about their fluidity and kind of their shape when they attack. And then I want to talk about Polito because a uh, big, huge signing for SKC. And I think they found someone that is going to be really good for them. So leading off with defensive pressure, I've watched a bit of SKC this season. High pressing has been kind of a part of Peter Vermees's tactical vernacular for, for a while now, although I think he's gotten a little bit away from it with an increase in possession. But SKC, SKC do very much still press and they are organized defensively from what I've seen. Jordan, what stood out to you about that defensive pressure? What specific things did you notice from watching uh, SKC? So before I talk about their specific pressure, I want to talk about their presence. And one of the things that I think is on SKC's favor this year is uh, just the... I feel like you can't go through too many years like they did last year. And they had a lot of injuries last year, right? So there was a lot of changes in their team every single week. And that is very difficult as a player on that team to feel like you're getting any kind of consistent relationship with the people next to you. So I think that consistency is really going to add to their presence defensively and allow them to tackle this offensive or this defensive pressure that they want to implement. So one of the things I I really noticed um, about their, the way that they were pressuring together as a unit is uh, it really starts with Polito. So they want to high press and they want Polito to decide, okay, we're going to, we're going to keep it in on one side of the field. So when he starts to attack one of the defenders, the center backs who have the ball for, uh, the opposing team, he'll then start to show with his body language which side of the field he wants to press it to. Um, as he's doing that, a lot of the time, SKC, if the, say the, let's just say for Vancouver, the left center back for Vancouver has the ball, Polito will run up to him, but keep him to Polito's left. So allow him to go to the other center back. So when the ball traveled to the other center back, one of the attacking midfielders for SKC, and a lot of the times it was Roger Espinoza, he would run to go pressure that opposing center back. So now you have your center forward and one of your attacking midfielders on the two center backs. So this is then kind of squeezing the play all the way to the right side of Vancouver or the left side for SKC. So then from there, it was just man on man. Everybody went to uh, the next person in line. Uh, Johnny Russell would go to the outside back. Ilya would come to the attacking midfielder and Kinda would take that other opposing uh, center midfielder. And it was like, it was like they were little bugs, like just attacking (laughs) these players. Right. It was like a a magnet, like as that pressure from Espinosa went, everybody just trinkled along and did their jobs. So even if it didn't, if, Espinosa didn't win the ball or that next pass, the player didn't win the ball in two or three passes. There was nowhere for the opponent to go. And I was so impressed with the way that SKC implemented this press and their patience to win the ball, because it isn't always that first defensive player to win the ball. It was their funneling and saying, okay, play the ball into this person and then we will win the ball there. So 
Uh, I saw this time and time again. One of the times I saw it was as uh, SKC went to go score their goal in the 25th minute against Houston, actually. So this is the second game against Houston. Polito is doing some defensive work and the ball ends up coming through the middle of the field. And what happens is there are so many numbers in the middle of the field for Sporting Kansas City that they just squeeze the ball in, into a center pressure and one of the center midfielders can just toe poke it back. Puncic, I think, picks up the ball, the center back for SKC, plays it all the way back to Melia. So now SKC has regained possession in their defensive half with their goalkeeper, which um, a lot of people would think, okay, well, that's a lot of work to get the ball all the way back to your goalkeeper. right. right. Melia then finds an outlet pass and Melia's ability with his feet to pick out a player in transition to then go the other way. So this ball in particular goes to Puncic. He did it again in um, a, a goal for Sporting Kansas City where he finds Graham Zusi, who then starts an attack through Kinda and they score a goal. Uh, so Melia is really key in the way that they try to counterattack. So Melia plays the ball back up to Polito, who just did all that defensive work, but finds himself in this pocket of space. And Polito lets the ball go over the top of his head, brings it down with the top of his, of his foot. It's like a magical touch, <laughs> Joe. Uh, but he gets fouled. Off of that foul, Sporting Kansas City, then when a header in the box, Roger Espinoza comes off of the header and scores a goal. So it's not always that first initial pressure. It's the patience and the presence defensively of Sporting Kansas City that eventually leads to the goals that they score or just winning the ball back. I love how in these examples so far, you've illustrated Pulido, Espinosa, and Garikinda as kind of these three main defensive players. And it's it's an interesting setup from Peter Vermees because you're looking at the number nine and the two advanced central midfielders as the main defenders, essentially, in what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. It's not the central defensive midfielder. It's not really the wide players who are maybe putting in more of a defensive shift or the fullbacks or the center backs. I think the press for SKC, their defensive presence and pressure really does start with Polito, Espinosa, and Kinda. That's how that's how Peter Vermees has built this roster, which I think is a real testament to him and to his ability to structure tactical flexibility and you know defensive work with roster building. How he's meshed those two things together, I think, is really admirable, and that's a huge part of what SKC's defensive ability is built off of. And we're going to see a lot more of that throughout the season. So it's not just the tactics, though, Joe. It's the determination of this team, and that's why I, I my first point is this defensive presence. It's not just the pressure. It's you are not going to win the first and second battle against Sporting Kansas City. Mm -hmm. They have this mindset about them, especially in these first two games where they won so many first and second balls. And as a player on a team who does that, that used to be something we used to track because if you're winning the first and second ball battle, you tend to have a handle on the game, right? You are playing on that edge where you know that if you go into a 50-50 battle, even if you don't win it, you have trust and confidence in your teammates that they're going to pick up the second ball. So what was happening in these first two games is SKC, even when they didn't win... Uh, you know, even when their press got broken down or the, the other team had the ball off of a goal kick, they were winning those balls. And then they were just able to counter press and counter press and counter press because there's so many numbers around the ball when they're winning first and second balls that they were just swarming both of these teams. I really felt like uh, neither Vancouver or Houston 
could get any kind of rhythm just because of the intensity defensively of this SKC team. So we've got defensive presence and pressure. Jordan, what's your next point for Sporting Kansas City? Okay, so I I don't think I mentioned there. They set up in a 4-3-3. And what I started to notice about the way that they are playing is when they have the ball and they're attacking – is they have so much movement and so much fluidity in the way that they're attacking. So I want to kind of pin down that point with they transform into like a three, four, three almost when Mm -hmm. they're attacking. And it doesn't always come from Ilya dropping into the, the, between the center backs and the center backs going wide and the wing, the outside backs going into like um, outside midfielder type positions. It can also be three of the four defensive players can hold down that three back. So say the ball for Sporting Kansas City, they want to build up using Graham Zussi on the right side. They'll bring in Martins and it'll be the three back with Beasler, Puncic and Martins. And those three will stay there. And then it'll be Johnny Russell and Shelton kind of coming into like these internal channels. And Kinda can either pop out into the, the left side and play as a outside midfielder or use the channel or Johnny Russell can then go into the channel. So when they are transforming into this, what I like about it is there's so much fluidity with the way that they go forward and it doesn't, it doesn't always look the same. Right. And um, one of the examples that I saw with this is in their first goal against Vancouver, it all stems again from winning the first and second balls. Of course. And what happens is Polito ends up winning the ball in the right channel of the field. So Kyrie Shelton, and here's the fluidity, Kyrie Shelton then goes into the middle of the field. So he's occupying more of that space that Polito tends to be centrally. Um, from here, the movement around the ball is what is pulling apart Vancouver defensively. And this whole time, Vancouver in this game against Vancouver, they're sitting really, really deep. Vancouver's dropping in. And what happens is Roger Espinoza, as one of those attacking midfielders starts to break the back line. So he makes a run from the center of midfield into the back line. The ball's still at Polito's feet in the channel, and that opens up space centrally for Polito to try to connect with. That ball by Polito and what happens in the midfield, it kind of gets picked off. But again, so many numbers for Sporting Kansas City in that area that they're able to pick the ball back up. I think it was Kinda on the far side who ends up winning it. And it's Kinda, Ilya, and Zussi as like these three center mids. Since Espinoza ran through and occupied that space in behind, he just pulls out wide. So he then goes to that space that Polito was in. Polito kind of comes a little bit more centrally in that internal channel on the right side. And here's that different movement, right? Now, Zussi's not providing width as the outside back. He's almost playing as a center midfielder. Polito is in that internal channel on the right side, and Espinoza is on the right wing. The ball then goes back out to Espinoza, and as Vancouver tracks the ball to their left, to Sporting Kansas City's right, Ilya is wide open and in this little pocket centrally in the field. Espinoza finds Ilya. He gets taken out. It leads to a free kick that then leads to a Puncic to Polito goal. That's a lot of movement for a little piece of the field, right? And I think that just seeing Roger Espinoza as that winger type, Graham Zussi centrally, uh, it just shows you how much freedom Sporting Kansas City has in the way that they want to go forward. 
That's such a great point because you look at the roster, you look at the starting 11 from these first couple of games for SKC, and they do have a lot of guys who have experience playing multiple positions. We look at Polito, he can drop down and play deeper in midfield. He can come do the defensive work, play as an attacking midfielder sometimes. Shelton is comfortable playing as a number nine. He can tuck inside into that channel or into a more central uh-huh. position. Espinoza can make those runs in behind the back line. He can rotate wide, drop deeper, do any number of those different things. Kinda is a hugely versatile player. Johnny Russell can drop a little bit deeper on the wing or tuck inside and cut inside onto his stronger dominant foot. I mean, these guys Zussi as well, Martins, I mean, Beasler and Puncic can even step high, break that first line of pressure with the ball. They have so much flexibility to work with that I think when they inevitably come up against lower block teams and teams that are comfortable sitting a little bit deeper, they're going to need to rely on those rotations because that's what breaks down the block. That's what creates movement in addition to moving the ball side to side quickly. When you move players in and out of position, you drag opposing defenders with you even within a zonal marking scheme. And so then that allows SKC to create little gaps to have their attacking playmakers get into those spaces and then really go draw a foul, get a free kick, do whatever it is at that point. But that's those rotations are so key for them and when they come up against some hugely defensive teams that's going to be really big for them well and that's like exactly the point of soccer right manipulating the space manipulating the ball to pull the defense into a uh, area that you want them to be so then you can actually go where you want to go and what i was feeling from this skc team when they they were feeling the game you know like you could tell their movements off the ball was just like i know the space is here So I'm going to drag the player, the defender into this space. So then we can find the ball in this opposite space. Um, That's one of the biggest points I saw from Polito. Like I think Polito is the real deal. And I time and time again, and I wish I would have clipped this all out and just done like a little highlight of this. Like he, there's one point in about the 30th to the 35th minute. I don't know the exact, I'll try to find the clip, but Espinosa has the ball and, and in the Vancouver game and Polito checks towards Espinosa. But then after he checks about two, three steps, he then runs in behind to that space he just left. And Espinoza and him have this connection that Espinoza knows he doesn't want the ball at his feet. He knows where he wants it in behind. And it was just a brilliant move by Polito, maybe something uh, minuscule that would go unnoticed, just that little check towards the ball. But he was doing that all the time, bringing defenders into the space where he doesn't want it, like towards his left. So then he can check back in and get the ball on his right. Uh, those little things. I just think he's a really smart player and, he cl- connects the lines for them, but he can score goals. I mean, you have a big signing. You want him to score goals and he has Absolutely. a goal in each game. So it's pretty a pretty good start for him. Um, my last point for SKC before we move on is I want to see them play against a team who is going to attack them, right? They haven't really been challenged defensively in these first two games. I mentioned Vancouver sat back a little bit more and really they had about four attacks in that first half of the game, the first game of the season, Vancouver's at home. And in one of those attacks, they scored a goal, the first attack of the game for Vancouver and the other out of the other three, they got two shots on goal. So those kind of numbers, if I'm SKC, I'm thinking, okay, how are we going to defend a team? If they sit in a low block, how are we going to defend better and more properly um, in transition And even in that moment where they gave up a goal, the only goal that they've given up, they had numbers back. It was just a 1v1 battle on the left side for Vancouver. And the cross uh, 
just goes behind the whole back line and it's just awareness, right? Awareness, checking your shoulders, seeing that there's a runner coming in behind you. So, um, I'm interested to see once we get back playing how sporting Kansas city plays against a team where the game will be a little bit more wide open. You're right. We haven't really seen SKC tested so far this season. I think the Houston Dynamo have potential under Tab Ramos. I think Mark Dos Santos can potentially yeah. make something of this Whitecaps team. But right now, those squads are not at the level where they can challenge Sporting Kansas City. And so until we actually see SKC come up against a competitive team who can really go at them exactly like you detailed there, Jordan, it's difficult to tell exactly what to make of this team. But I think it's fair to say the the building blocks are encouraging. And the signs, the personnel, the, the discipline, the determination like you're talking about, all of the those building blocks are there for Sporting Kansas City, and that should be encouraging for their fans, for the coaching staff, and for the players as well. Yeah, and you bring in a center back, a center midfielder, and a center forward. Those are really three good good players that they've added to their roster this year, amongst other players who are now healthy and playing and um, all the, that good stuff. So, yeah, impressed with Sporting Kansas City, especially defensive mentality. That's my number one takeaway from them. Even though they won every game, there's a reason that they're winning and not giving up goals, right? It's that mentality. Absolutely. All right. The next team that we're going to talk about on today's show is the Colorado Rapids. This is my squad that I analyzed for this episode. The Colorado came in the, the very first game of the Major League Soccer season, a 2-1 win over DC United at Audi Field. Then they came back for their home opener against Orlando City, won that game 2-1 as well. A couple of late winners in these games. So where SKC has more dominated their opening two matches, Colorado has left it a little bit more nervy, a little bit later in the game to come back for these six points. They're still sitting near the top of the Western Conference. Jordan, before I get into kind of what I have to say about this team, I want to ask you a question. Okay. After, after Robin Frazier, Colorado's new head coach who was signed late in August last season, Colorado won in 2019 the last five of their last seven games and nearly made the playoffs after a really poor start to the season. Jordan, you were there. You followed along with that working for the Rapids. Can you sort of detail to me quickly from your perspective, how was it that Frazier righted the ship in Colorado last year? Because it it certainly looks like that whatever he did last year has set them up for success this season, even in the early part of the year. Yeah, I wouldn't give honestly, full credit to Frazier in last year's riding the ship because when Connor Casey came in, he did Mm -hmm. do a good job of owning the temperature of the team, right? How they were going to go into each game and saying, okay, um, I trust you guys. I believe in you guys, like setting the tone as who they were as a club and as a unit. So I think the building blocks of that had already been established. And it was nice that the team, when Frazier came in, that they were at a place where uh, they did have more belief in who they were as a squad. But with that being said, I felt like just the aura of Robin Fraser and who he is, uh, not only <laughs> as a player, but as a coach, I think he really bring, brought uh, this sense of like, I really believe in you guys. And he was super excited that he had a young squad with so much potential. And he saw that the building blocks were there and what he came in and did, it was instill that belief, but give them some really good foundation to play off of. And if you're looking and I'm imagining like you watching these two games, you can start to see some of those foundational things that Robin Fraser has put into play. And, um, yeah, really excited for what he's going to do with this rapid squad. He's definitely, and, and not just Frazier, like you talked about Casey before him in the, the rosters, the roster building here for the Rapids, but they definitely made the Rapids a fun, entertaining team to watch. And that was uh, just really quick before you go into your points. Like, I think the fun and 
you have to, for me, yes, there is ideas that in like ways, passing patterns that you can build up and go and move forward attacking. But I feel like in attack, you have to have this sense of like feeling the game and freedom. And I think that's one of the things that Fraser brought into this squad is like, yeah, we'll try to do this and we'll try to do that going forward. But at the end of the day, like you're on the ball, you're making the decisions. Um, You have to feel out if it's the right choice or if it's not the right choice. Even if I said this is quality, it it might not work. That's a huge point. I talked to Frazier over the offseason for a piece that I wrote for The Athletic, and he was all about situational decision-making, helping us players to understand when the right time for certain things are. Are we going to cross here? Are we going to combine here? All these small details. He wants to instill that in his players and have them be making you know these thousands and thousands of decisions over the course of 90 minutes rather than him having to micromanage everything from the sideline, which right. really isn't possible in the first right. place. Right. Okay. So you had the ability to break this down and watch these first two games. And what did you pick out from these first couple games for the Rapids, Joe? I've got one thing offensively and defensively. The first thing, I think this was my very first tweet of the soccer season, of the Major League (laughs) Soccer season. I have to go back and check to be absolutely certain. But I think I tweeted about how the Rapids attack was going to be a pretty interesting mixture of possession and then just kind of chucking it into the box for Kai Kamara. And (laughs) after watching these two games in the fine-tooth comb, that's been my takeaway, 100%. They have this weird two-faced attacking thing going on. It actually kind of seems to be working for them. They, They have a heavy, heavy dose of crosses, maybe a little bit too heavy. I think that could be dialed back just a little bit with how much they're putting the ball into the box. We talk about the Galaxy as a heavy crossing team. The Rapids had even more crosses over the first two weeks than the Galaxy did. 29 in their opening win against DC United, and then 31 in their win against Orlando City. That's a lot. I'm guessing that's going to be you know cut back a little bit over the course of the season. But they have a guy in the box who can win those balls. Kai Kamara, six foot three. He's not a Chicharito, Jordan. He's not five no. foot nine like you and me or Javier Hernandez. Kai Kamara is in the box. He has a physical presence. He knows how to head the ball. This guy is going to demand the ball and he deserves it too. He's a he's a legendary Major League Soccer goal scorer who's still really able to contribute in the box and out of the box as well. Yeah, the headmaster. Self-proclaimed headmaster. Ty Kamara can give himself a nickname if he wants to. You score as many goals as he had in this league and he earns the right to do that 100%. He's, he's able to dunk on almost any center back in Major League Soccer. For their first goal of the year against DC United, an equalizer in Audi Field. You know, Jack Price came in a recycled set piece, sent the ball into Kai Kamara, who headed it into the box over Frederic Briant. I mean, it's, it's simple. It's not, it's not rocket science when you have Kai Kamara. So if the Rapids can cut back a little bit on maybe some of the unnecessary crosses and just focus on getting maybe 15 to 20 quality crosses per game, Kai Kamara is going to continue to eat in Major League Soccer. But that's only one half of the face. I okay. think the other half of the Rapids' offensive approach has to do with their ability to play creatively from the back, work the ball forward, and now they have in Eunice Namli a creative playmaker who can dominate Zone 14, which is the zone kind of right in front of the box on the field if you divide it into a bunch of little rectangles shapes. That's the area just outside of the box in the middle of the field. Namely can control that area. He can also help the team build up from deep. He's he's a fantastic playmaker and the whole Rapids roster is structured to allow him to really shine and to play off of Kai Kamara and allow the Rapids to move the ball forward defensively, win the ball and then shift it into the attack, move it quickly from the back or slow things down and build up as well. They have that 
tactical flexibility to do either one of those things. They can have their center backs. So far, it's been Drew Moore and Lalas Abubakar as the center backs, but they also brought in Austin Trusty if he can work his way out of what I'm guessing is Robin Frazier's doghouse at the start of the season. Those center backs can build up, allow Clint Irwin to play them the ball off goal kicks. Sam Vines. Jordan, Ooh. I don't know how much of Sam Vines Ooh. you've seen. Probably a lot, right? Yeah. He's he's a quality young left back. He played in the, the January camp friendly, which was actually in February for the U.S. national team against Costa Rica as a left back. I was very much impressed with him in these games. As a left back, one of my favorite things about him is he can tuck inside. This is similar to kind of what you were talking about with Graham Zussi, right? He can tuck mm-hmm. in a little bit and play with the ball. He can either dribble in or just rotate inside and have Shinashiki who plays as a left winger in Robin Frazier's kind of 4-2-3-1 or 4-3-3 shape. They have so much flexibility with, with a guy like Vines who I really do think could be the U.S. national team's future left back after, after watching him last season and watching him this season and with the men's national team already. Then they have Keegan Rosenberry as that sort of right-sided fullback who can tuck into central midfield or rotate into that back three. There are a lot of parallels with this you know, Colorado Rapids team to how Sporting Kansas City wants to play. Mm-hmm. And when I talked to Frazier over the offseason, he mentioned FKC as a team that he emulates and tries to watch. And so I think there's that's not a coincidence, basically. That's not a that's not a shock that the Rapids are having some of these similar rotations to SKC and to some other quality possession teams around around the country and around the world. So these rotations between the fullbacks and the center backs and, and the, the midfielders tucking inside and nominally dropping deep, they have so many combinations that they can play. And I think that's what makes the Rapids so much fun to watch with the ball at their feet. Yeah, I would agree with you. And what I've watched from the Rapids this year and what I've got to see of Anomaly is one of the things I think he really helps with them is he finds those pockets in a buildup where he can get on the half turn and go forward. Oh, so, yeah. So he's either, you know, he could be even running towards the sideline, but receiving the ball, like say he's going towards uh, the right side of the Rapids attack, running towards the sideline, he can receive that ball on the half turn on his left foot and push it past a whole line of defense. So then the Rapids are off and and can start to break, you know, Kai Kamara can stretch the back line, check in if he needs to, if that's where the space is. Uh, just add a little bit of variance in the way that the Rapids break that that center midfield line. Nominally on the half turn is is crazy good. I tweeted about this yesterday. This will be Sunday when I was going through to watch some of these matches for the Rapids. He's, his ability to see space and to manipulate his body and then as a result kind of shift how people are defending him is absolutely insane. Maybe I'd have to go back and watch every attacking playmaker in the league, which is not going to happen. But maybe, <laughs> maybe so far this season from the games I've watched, I think he's the best at manipulating space when the ball is off the passer's foot and headed towards him. It's like that split second where the ball is rolling along the ground or coming in the air. And in that little split second, he's making decisions. He's changing his body shape. He's doing all sorts of weird things, checking his shoulder to mm-hmm. see if he has space to turn and how he can get that defender off his back. The only way I can describe it is like, he just makes the hard things look so easy. Yes, and I know uh-huh. it's just like two games into the season, but those things that you just said, like the amount of decisions he makes in a split second to allow himself to get on the ball in the proper space, to get the ball on the proper foot in the, the right space uh, is super intriguing to me. And one of the things that I liked most about his goal that he scored, and it's in that that zone 14 that you were talking about yeah, against Orlando. Yep. Yeah. And he just 
finds a way to like slither through all these lines. I think it's two or three defenders and he's always getting the ball to his proper foot. He's always finding that extra bit of space that he can utilize. Um, it's a really good goal and, and he's a quality player. He makes everything look easy. I think that's mm-hmm. what you're saying. He makes yeah. it look effortless. He's always composed. It's almost like he's playing at like 75% all the time. I don't know exactly how to describe it, but if you go back and watch some clips of him, it's like he's never going what looks like 100%, but he's never going lower than than kind of his minimum floor, which is still way higher than almost every other MLS player, especially these defenders and midfielders that he's going up against. And that the same thing was true in Russia and in the Netherlands. I mean, he's played against some high-quality players, and he's showing just why he was able to come into this team you know, and come in and be a high-profile signing for the Rapids already. And it's what the Rapids needed, in my opinion, is that attention. They needed an attention grabber, right? Because they have quality midfielders in Acosta and Price and and players who can then uh, spray the ball around the field, right? Those two players are really good at distribution and Acosta can dribble and commit players on the dribble. But if you don't have somebody who the other team is like, man, this guy's going to beat us in an instant. Like we have to, we have to keep our eyes on where he is all the time. And you don't open up that space for other players to uh, really be able to utilize their full strength. So I think he balances their midfield really well. He absolutely does. You have Price able to give in those long balls to Kai Kamara. Maybe those crosses are coming from the wingers from either Shinoshiki, Jonathan Lewis off the bench, or Sam Nicholson. Then you have the fullbacks as well, who when they get forward, normally can take some attention off of them. Give Kellen Acosta an extra pocket of space. There's so many options here Mm -hmm. for Colorado, and I think that's exactly what Frazier wants. He wants to give his players the chance to make quality decisions by giving them as many options as possible over the course of the game. So if the Rapids can maybe cut back on a few crosses, still give Kai Kamara some service, and then really lean into having Nomaly be their primary playmaker while leaning into some things from some Sam Bynes and Acosta and all the guys we've mentioned that are going to continue to be a difficult team to count out offensively. They're not they're still not dominating teams um, with yeah. the ball yet, but it's going to come, I think, over the course of the season if they're able to find that balance. So if, if you're comparing them to SKC with Peter Vermees, who's been there for how many years? You know, a thousand like, years, I think. Yeah, right? yeah. And a lot of those players have been there for a long time, too. You know, yeah. there's such there is a deep understanding of what is being asked of them as SKC or the adaptation of what is being asked to them. And when you're just bringing a few different pieces, then you can adapt quicker. And I think for the Rapids, they are building off of last year and it's only going to get better. Yeah, I think it's exciting times for the Rapids with the ball. Without the ball, I have a few more questions about how exactly they're playing. I think this is not necessarily a coincidence, but it's pretty funny. Jordan, you and I talked about some of the problems associated with Almeida's man-marking system on mm-hmm. last week's show. I think the timing of that conversation was pretty great because guess what the Rapids do without the ball, Jordan? Are they man-marking? They're kind of man-marking, which I was not expecting. They're doing this kind of weird hybrid zonal man-marking thing. It's like not entirely <laughs> San Jose-like. They're not, you know, selling all out for the man marking and doing it over, you know, seven-eighths of the field and having their center back step crazy high up the field every single time. But they're doing it a lot. I don't know exactly when they choose to do it or why. I haven't been able to figure that out yet. But they are man marking within their zonal kind of like 4-4-2 block. So okay. here's an example. I think in the first game of the season, we saw a lot of times where Lalas Abubakar, Colorado's right center back, would step way high up the field to mark Ola Kamara. I think Taylor Twelman even talked about it on his new show for ESPN. He's He was kind of everywhere, and you can't miss him with the hair, right? You cannot miss Lalas Abubakar stepping high up the Best field. Best hair in the league. <laughs> Best hair, 100%. And so we just see him flying all over the place. And at the time, I was thinking, hmm. 
he's just really overly aggressive. Like, I think he probably needs to calm down a little bit because he's tracking these forwards into really dangerous areas that leaves Drew more exposed right next to him. But that's not just Abubakar's recklessness. That's Colorado's defensive scheme right now. And I don't know exactly why. But occasionally, when the opposing team comes down with the ball in possession, the Rapids will just kind of click into this man-marking mode out of their 4-4-2 block. They'll go from being content to defend in that zonal scheme to flipping the switch. And then all of a sudden, they'll be they'll be moving around. The fullbacks will be doing that that thing where they mark the wingers and the wingers will mark the fullbacks. The, the center backs will step high to the forwards. And there's this rotational man-marking thing out of that 4-4-2. In the fourth minute of their matchup against Orlando City, Orlando City forward Benji McKell dropped into midfield and Drew Moore follows him. 36-year-old Drew Moore. Abubakar kind of slides over to cover that central space from his other center back spot. While this is happening, Jack Price, central defensive midfielder for the Rapids, drops to cover an Orlando midfielder who was trying to run in behind the back line. As this is happening... It's becoming more and more clear that the Rapids really aren't great at doing the zonal marking thing, the zonal man marking thing. Abubakar could have been overloaded if Orlando City would have sent some runners into that central channel. On the weak side, Namli decided not to track back to cover his his player, which left Vines with kind of a 2v1 overload that he had to deal with. Orlando City weren't quick enough to expose them, but there are huge gaps that come up with this defensive setup that I think could cause some serious concerns and some serious problems for the Rapids if they choose to play this way. Yeah, I don't, I can't speak to that because for me, I've, um, I watched about, I watched their first game, um, but I was watching it in a different perspective right sure. and mm-hmm. and also i was also putting to in, in into account in the first game how windy it was and how Usually much that windy. can yep. affect the game in so many different ways um i can i can understand a mixture between a zonal marking and a man-to-man marking when you have a player who demands more attention right and you man mark that player right um, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised that you're saying that it is a little bit more of a man marking system. I can't watch the games right now because I'm in Colorado. So I'm oh, out right. on the Colorado games. So, um, I, I want to watch them, but I am not able to as we speak. So, um, yeah, I'm interested to see by the time I get to a place where I can watch them or by the time season restarts, if, um, if that's something that I still notice, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. It's it's something that I think has potential, right? I think yeah. the idea is fundamentally sound. We were talking about that, maybe having a hybrid between zone and man marking as something that might work for the earthquakes because they're getting exposed a little too often with that all-out man marking system. So I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibilities we could see this start working. I just think it's such a curious wrinkle that Robin Frazier threw in here because I wasn't expecting it to start the year. I don't think they showed it last season. It's not something that I think the Rapids have done before. And honestly, it's not something that I've seen from really any other team in Major League Soccer to do such a hard balance between these two things. And so maybe at some point in the year, we'll see Austin Trusty back in at center back and then him and Abubakar can kind of rotate between stepping high, covering ground. Both of those guys are quick, long legs. They can travel a lot of ground. Whereas Drew Moore is a little bit older, not nearly as fast. So maybe even a simple personnel flip like that would help out. But I don't know. I don't have answers. Again, like I said before, yeah. I just have a lot of questions about this, but I think it's still worth talking about so that maybe when the season does start up again, listeners can watch out for it a little bit and then we'll have more discussion about it as the season continues from here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how about that Drew Moore uh, goal to welcome himself right? back to Colorado? Crazy. That was a huge finish. <laughs> Another late game winner for the Rapids right. and nothing, nothing better than center back Drew Moore coming back to Colorado and getting that, I think, 90th minute game winner. Yeah, it was good. Good, good. All right, Jordan, you and I have got one team left. The only other team in the Western Conference that has not had a loss or a draw to start the season. Minnesota United 
We have a little disclaimer here before we yeah. start this Minnesota United section. Jordan, why don't you hit us with the, the advertising disclaimer? I think we need to tell the people this. We were only able to watch the game against San Jose Earthquakes. And the other game that Minnesota played was at Portland. And it's not we're not able to watch it right now on ESPN Plus. So or Fox. Um, it's not available anywhere. So it's, I don't think Fox, anybody yeah. unless so you we, work for MLS. I think you're bum out of luck on this one. Right. Or if Fox. We could have asked Fox to replay it because I know that they were replaying some games. But That's anyways. true. I'm not sure they would have wanted to replay that one anyway. But <laughs> hey, you never know. Um, so we weren't able to watch that game uh, in Portland there. Um, but we watched the game against the Earthquakes. And I think what we want to disclaim is we just said it and we were talking about the Rapids as the Earthquakes are a team who are very unique in Major League Soccer, and they play a man-marking system defensively, which can change the way that you play tactically as their opponents. So I think that's the best way to disclaim it. Also, it was a downpour. There <laughs> a lot of rain. Had a lot of elements um, and just like as if it could have gone any weirder. It was the tactics and the, uh, should we call it a tsunami? Why not? I think that that is maybe even underselling it. No, that's about right, I think. Um, even despite these other factors, even despite Almeida's crazy man-marking thing, and even despite the rain, I kind of respect how Minnesota United played. And I think we can still see some consistent trends, even in a weird yeah. game like this, even in an early season game. We can kind of still see how Minnesota United want to play, how Adrian Heath plans to set up this team and use use his system throughout the entire year. So we're going to see tweaks here and there for sure. But I think there are three main tenets that I noticed from Minnesota United that I'm guessing you'll have some things to dig a little bit deeper on, but three kind of surface level things that define, to me, Minnesota United's strategy. So, All right, hit us, hit us with it. Defensive 4-4-2 block. That's number one. They, yes. they don't love possession. They want to sit deep. They had 42% possession in their first game, 37% possession in their second game. They scored eight goals in those two games with that very low percent very low possession percentage. So they don't really care if they have the ball or not. They're going to get it and they're going to go quick with it. That's for sure. That's number one. Quick offensive transitions, number two, right? After mm -hmm. they have the ball, after they, after they're defending in their block, excuse me, they'll win the ball, go forward quickly. That's, you know, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Then finally, set pieces. I think that's the third thing. They have guys who can go up and win set pieces. Ike Opara, two set piece goals against San Jose. So maybe some poor marking as well thrown in there from the earthquakes. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, uh, he's a big dude. He can go up and get it. Michael Boxall as well. The other center back in Adrian Heath's kind of 4-4-2 or 4-2-3-1. Both of those guys love to jump up, head the ball in. They have Amaria as well, who, who scored a couple headed goals already this season, not on set pieces, but in transition. So those three things for me, defensive, 4-4-2 block, quick transitions and set pieces kind of define Minnesota United. And and I think we're going to keep seeing those throughout the year. We definitely saw it in this game against San Jose. We really did. That second goal, I want to dive into a little bit more about those things that you were saying. So it's a goal kick for Minnesota United. And off of that goal kick, uh, Amaria comes off to challenge the first ball. And what happens when he challenges the ball, Joe, is that that transition, right? So he goes and challenges the ball. This is your center forward. Right then and there, there's already three players from Minnesota United who are beyond him, higher up on the field. So thinking, okay, if he wins this ball, if he flicks it, we can win the second ball, right? We are anticipating always that is going to go our way and throwing numbers forward. He doesn't win the first ball. 
it kind of goes into this little bit of a shuffle essentially, but Amaria then picks the ball back up in the middle third of the field. So those three players are still beyond him. He finds Gregus, who's in a, a pocket of space right in the middle of the field, almost like dead center of the pitch. Gregus then plays Amaria that running back into the like running higher on the field. So he plays the ball and then goes right away. So that same attacking mindset that you just said, that transition, like I'm going to get forward as quickly as I can. So then what I thought was really interesting is Gregus recognized that he didn't have. And you can watch this. We'll clip this. And, and so you guys can see this. He looks around him and is like this is a man marking system we're playing against. I have nobody by me, like literally nobody by me. And he's like, acres of space. I can go make a two V one opportunity. So what he does is he makes a two V one with Amaria. And then it's a good dish just to the, his right for a gray goose to strike on goal near post. Um, using, using like that little bounce on this wet pitch to uh, make it difficult for San Jose keeper who off the top of my head right now, I am blanking on his Vega. name. Vega, uh, for it's really difficult ball for Vega to get to. Um, so that is a lot of, okay, offensive transition, throw numbers forward, and um, just confidence in, in their ability to attack in numbers. And there was another similar example, a little bit of a different phase of play in terms of how the play starts. But Minnesota United in the second half, excuse me, at the very, very end of the first half, just about 10 seconds left, fourth minute of stoppage time. They're tired. It's been raining. It's been a long half. They're still going forward quickly. And that's that's such a huge point for Adrian Heath, because if you don't do that, if you lose some of your impetus to get forward, transition attacks don't work, right? If your players aren't going high up the field at quick speeds, you're not going to be able to beat the defense down the field. And that's exactly what happens in this game. Minnesota United absolutely beat San Jose down the field into the attacking half. Robin Lode wins the ball in Minnesota United's block. San Jose lose the ball. So now Minnesota United have it and they're looking to transition forward quickly. Lode kind of plays it to Alonzo. Alonzo finds Metanier, the right back for Minnesota, who has just absolutely sprinted past, I believe it was Danny Hoosen on that, mm-hmm. the right side of Minnesota, the left side of San Jose. So now because Metanier won that kind of first sprint, he won the acceleration battle, Minnesota United are able to go forward very, very quickly. He sprints forward now with the ball at his feet in Minnesota United's half. There are a slew of runners going with him. After about five, six, seven seconds, Minnesota United have eight players in the attacking half. They went from in their block in their block a few seconds later, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven seconds go by maybe, and they have a a ton of numbers forward into the attacking half and they're combining on the right side. They move the ball into the half space. The halftime whistle ends up blowing right there, actually, so that nothing comes of the attack. But the fact that Metanier shows that sprinting ability to get down the wing and the rest of Minnesota United's attack, everyone but the center backs and the goalkeeper follow him. A little risky? Absolutely. But they're going for it. They're moving forward in transition quickly. They're taking risks with the ball, even if they don't love to have the ball in possession. They still show that attacking impetus with their quick transition attacks. And I think that's absolutely something that Adrian Heath preaches to this team, how quickly they want to move the ball down the field with these sprints, with these timed runs on and off the ball to move into the attacking half. They do a really good job of that. And what's key and I think the difference in what has happened to Minnesota over this last year is like they have a center forward who can hold the ball up and if you want to run players beyond the ball and it and create those attacking transitions a lot of the times it's like an up back and through kind of thing right so 
Emeria is a player. Yeah, he wants to score goals, and he said, "What he's going to score twenty five goals, yep. which he's mm-hmm. he's already getting there." I think he's close. He had, no, not close, but he's on he's the way. Two or three? Does he have three now? I think he has three. Yeah, yeah, three. He had two in that um, that second game. So um, he is able to hold the ball up, bring in a midfielder. But then as that midfielder comes in, there's already people beyond him who are doing the hard work, sprinting to chase the ball down. So then he can find himself in the box, in that goal scoring uh, pocket where he can put the ball away. So I think he is a really big key in how Minnesota wants to play. Amaria is a great player for Adrian Heath. I think he might be a tough guy for Mason Toy off the bench. Forward competition is good, but it's going to be hard for Toy to find minutes, assuming Amaria stays healthy. That hold-up play that he offers, that Amaria offers, is huge. Allows him to get out in transition exactly like what you just detailed. Amaria's movement in the box is also very good. He likes to score those garbage goals. I think you called them in our prediction show for the Western Conference back before the season started. He's he's so far looks to me like he checks all the boxes for this number nine as as a single number nine and then defending as a front two. That's huge for them. And I think it's going to be tough for the young American Mason Toy to get on the field for Minnesota United. Uh, not not great for Toy, but definitely good for Minnesota United fans and for Amaria. Absolutely. I am curious, though, as we were saying with Sporting Kansas City, this Minnesota United team played Portland, who was in our talk last week, and yeah. San Jose, who was in our talk. Our talk of our, shame, our, yeah. Our, mm-hmm. our podcast last week. And these are two teams who we're not saying like aren't going to do well this season, but haven't started off on the best of footing, right? So I think for me, and we can talk about Amaria and how he's done in these first couple games as much as we want, and Minnesota, but uh, I am really interested to see them play against uh, SKC team, against a uh, team who is going to challenge them in just different ways than uh, this San Jose team have. These first two games for Minnesota United have not been against the stiffest of competition, but I think that it has allowed us in a way to get a feel for how they want yeah, to play. And then we can, evalu- we can evaluate their ability to, to meet higher levels of competition from that tactical foundation, from the on-field foundation as the season progresses. There's one more thing on this team that I want to hit before we wrap up today's show. And and it's not surprising for anyone, probably. It's it's the center backs from Minnesota United. <laughs> I love this center back tandem of Michael Boxell and Ike Parra as sort of the rocks of central defense and sometimes the base for Adrian Heath's attacking play as well. These two guys are comfortable defending. Boxall and Alpara can both win headers. They're able to cover ground in midfield. If those central midfielders are caught out of position, they can step, they can cover each other. They have really good a really good rapport between the two players. But then also, especially against San Jose, where there's lots of channels to dribble the ball forward because of the disarray that their defensive setup is often in. I, I just love watching Boxell and Alpara dribble the ball forward, kind of gliding forward. It's a little awkward. They don't ever look fully comfortable with the ball at their feet, but they get the job done and they really set almost set the standard in Major League Soccer for their willingness to be adventurous with the ball in those moments where Minnesota United are bringing it out from the back and trying to play forward with a little bit more of a possession look. So that's just kind of my homage to the the Minnesota United center backs that I always love watching and I, I really enjoy watching these two guys play together and watching them on both sides of the ball, which is pretty unique in the context of the center back position in Major League Soccer in 2020. Yeah, I like that. Give a little center back love there to end this week's podcast. It's good, Joe. 
there's no re- there's no other way that I'd rather end a show. I'm going to be quite <laughs> honest. There's no other way that I would rather end this week's show. Jordan, we've gone through, we've talked about several teams here at the top of the Western Conference that have started out well this season and that have the building blocks to continue that performance when we eventually get back underway. You talked about Sporting Kansas City, their defensive presence and pressure, their offensive flexibility, and then Pulido, and a little bit of an ode to Gatti Kinda in there as well. I went through the Rapids and we talked about their two-faced attacking and then their kind of confusing defensive setup that we'll monitor more as the season goes forward from here. And then we've got Minnesota United with that 4-4-2 block, wanting to play on the break, dangerous on set pieces as well, and then Mayo Mosh, the center backs. I think that about covers it for the top of the Western Conference, wouldn't you say? I think we nailed it. I think we did too. We've got, <laughs> we've got a lot more shows coming out over this break because the season is suspended at least until early May. We're going to have lots of content coming for you in this kind of weird impromptu off-season. Another show will be out next week. Jordan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it, and I always love talking tactics and talking soccer with you. Yeah, it's so much fun. Thanks, Joe.